Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host Matt Robeson, broadcast on WKXLAM and FM and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And now you can like Beyond Politics on Facebook. So please visit us there. We're pleased today to be speaking with Robert Parlberg. Uh, he is an associate professor in the sustainability science program at the Harvard Kennedy School, as well as the Betty F. Johnson Professor Emeritus of Political Science in the Department of Political Science at Wellesley College. He's written a fascinating and wonderfully named new book called, quote, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Like many in our audience, we like our organic food and the idea that we're supporting safer, more environmentally friendly farming practices, not to mention small farmers in our neighborhood while eating healthier and cleaner food. Plus, everyone likes to stick it to the man and there's no bigger corporate boogeyman than giant agribusiness like Cargill or Monsanto. The only problem, our guest says, and folks, hold on to your hats and rub your bellies because you may not love to hear this, he says we might be kidding ourselves when it comes to organic and a lot of the things we think about food and farming. He's here to explain why. Robert Paulberg, welcome to Beyond Politics. Pleased to be here. Thank you. So this subject of our food and our food system and how to keep it and what it is and what it isn't and what it does do and what it doesn't do is pretty fascinating. And now... In New Hampshire, we pride ourselves on our small local agriculture. We visit farmers markets on Saturdays. Um, I have dear friends who run a 100 acre farm up on a beautiful hilltop outside Concord where they focus on regenerative agriculture and sustainable uh, agricultural practices and grow really tasty tasty food. And so this will be an interesting discussion, especially for small farmers. So I want to start out by asking you about where you're coming from in writing this book. In your, in your book, you say consumers not only want food to be tasty, safe, nutritious, and affordable, they also want it to come from farms that protect the nat natural environment, respect the welfare of animals, help sustain rural communities, and give hired workers a living wage. You say, I share all of these goals, but my specific prescriptions differ. My research experience has not left me yearning for an organic local or slowed food system, since that would mean abandoning a century's worth of modern science would force farmers to accept more toil and less income, consumers fewer nutrition, nutritious food choices, and greater destruction would be done to the natural environment. 
That's my head is exploding. Okay. My head is simply, I'm coming apart at the seams here because for my entire adult life, I have been focused on finding organic, going organic, eating organic, shopping organic. I've been a really good doobie. So what's going on here? What's your motivation in writing this book? What's your message? And how can this be true? Well, you're the kind of guy who really needs to read this book, obviously. Uh, what you've been told is what uh, large numbers of people have been told. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that people have embraced, I think, with, uh, with insufficient um, uh, suspicion <laughs> of, uh, of the value of this um, organic uh, local message. You, you started by describing uh, the wonderful uh, food environment in New Hampshire, and it is wonderful. But you have to be realistic about, um, about it as a way to provision our population. If you uh, look at the numbers, you look at all of the farms, small and large, in all of New England, and that includes uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont and Maine, all of those farms together produce only 1% of agricultural output in the United States. So it's, it's not a way to, uh, to feed America. Uh, it's a nice addition to our diet and it's a wonderful social and cultural asset for the New England countryside these kinds of farms attract large numbers of smart progressive people into, into uh, rural communities. They are a magnet for, uh, for genuine income uh, in tourist season. It's, uh, it's a wonderful cultural and social uh, asset, but uh, realistically, this is not what is feeding New Hampshire or New England. We have to rely on, on farms that have embraced more productive technologies that are more specialized, that are, are larger in scale. So this entire topic is really complicated and you present in your book, a lot of compelling information to argue for a, a general rethink as, as you're suggesting here. Now, it struck me in looking at your book that when people talk about organic, they tend to glom together a whole bunch of issues healthier food, local jobs, fewer pesticides, less use of fertilizer, lower carbon, and et cetera. There, there are even more. And what you do in your book is you break all of those down one by one, and you question the assumptions, and you present some, some compelling data on each of them. It reminds me of the old joke about trying to break down, what problem are we trying to solve here? So let's do this one at a time and start where you start. Um, let's talk about big farming, industrial farming, commercial farming at scale. Now, look, I read The Omnivore's Dilemma. I like that book. But you really start to unpack the question of whether large-scale farming really is a boogeyman. Is it really bad? So what is that more nuanced view that you develop in your book? Well, large-scale farming of the kind that we, we've seen in the United States since the middle of the 20th century has actually been better for the environment uh, than traditional farming. Uh, 
given the much larger quantity of food that the market has asked us to produce. U.S. agriculture has tripled its total output since, since 1940. If we had tried to do that using the traditional farming practices of the early 20th century, it would have been an environmental calamity. It was already a calamity. Uh, I'm not old enough to remember the Dust Bowl, but, uh, but my dad was. We extended low-yield farming into the drought-prone uh, southern plains in the 1920s. When a drought came in the 1930s, the soil blew away. Uh, environmental refugees were created. It was a humanitarian as well as an environmental calamity. We, we've only been able to avoid that kind of environmental disaster in the years since 1940 by using modern science, and that's everything from fertilizer to hybrid seeds to no-till farming to GPS systems to drones to remote sensors. We've used modern science to increase the productivity of land that's already been plowed so we don't have to plow up more land. If you look at corn production in the United States, since 1940, we've increased the production of corn five-fold while using 20% less land. So uh, if the, the environmental sustainability of traditional farming is, is mostly an illusion. It grows out of the fact that we were producing very little food back then. If we tried to produce what we're producing today using the methods of the early 20th century, we would have to plow more land, we'd have to cut more trees, we'd have to destroy more wildlife habitat, and it would be, it's something we don't want to do. So it, it raises a question uh, for me in terms of um, the methods, uh, the scientific methods that you've outlined. Um, have, are there any downsides to industrial farming that, um, you have seen in terms of the application of science which have had health effects for people? Well, the uh, modern commercial farmers don't call themselves industrial farmers. They, they think that's a little dismissive. They, they know that they're managing what's still essentially a biological process. They call themselves uh, growers. And we've made mistakes. We've made mistakes after the Second World War uh, we, uh, when nitrogen was suddenly uh, inexpensive, we applied too much nitrogen fertilizer and it leached into the groundwater and it polluted streams and did serious environmental damage. Also new uh, organic chlorine insecticides like DDT became available and uh, farmers started using them uh, in excessive quantities as well with uh, damage to non-target species and risks to uh, risks to the human food supply. But we've, uh, we've, we've corrected uh, some of those uh, mistakes. If you look at insecticide use in the United States today in American farming, it's more than 80% below where it was in 1972 at the peak. Thanks to Rachel Carson and her book, Silent Spring. Uh, thanks to tighter regulations on insecticides. Thanks to new precision techniques for delivering uh, pesticides. We've cut uh, dramatically our reliance on, on these chemicals and made uh, 
uh, the food supply uh, safe from, from dangerous uh, residues. And we protected non-target species from inadvertent harm. On fertilizers, we've found ways to apply fertilizer with much greater precision. We use GPS systems and variable rate application equipment with onboard computers linked to digital soil maps. We apply fertilizer only at the optimal level, uh, almost square meter by square, square meter as the equipment goes through the field. Since we've increased agricultural production by nearly 50% since 1980, but fertilizer use has remained essentially flat. So for every bushel we produce, we've reduced fertilizer use uh, considerably. We you hit on a really interesting what? dynamic there, which is the distinction between, I, I mean, I think for a lot of people who are parents like me, when they think of organic foods, they think of, oh, I'm gonna avoid all those pesticides that go on the foods. But it sounds like there's a very interesting distinction to be had here. Are you, as I understand it, there is a case to be made that organic farming methods have value in terms of protecting farm workers from exposure to pesticides and prote protecting watersheds from pesticides leaching into the water, but not so much from a consumer standpoint for, for worried parents like me when it comes to their kids ingesting pesticides. Is that the case? Is there, is it kind of that much more nuanced view when it comes to pesticides or, or what is the story when it comes to organics and pesticides? Well, you're on to an important uh, point here. Um, I would, I would preface it all by uh, pointing out that the, the organic farming ideal originated um, before we were using any synthetic pesticides. It, it originated as a pushback against synthetic nitrogen fertilizer back in the 1920s. <laughs> now, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer has been one of the, the biggest pluses for productive farming in the last 100 years. The reason the organic sector in the United States remains so small is that you can't use any synthetic nitrogen fertilizers and be certified as an uh, organic farmer. Uh, most people don't know it, but <laughs> only 1% of harvested cropland in the United States is certified for organic production. Um, that's why or organic output is limited and that's why the price of organic produce is so high in the marketplace. Organic produce costs on average 50% more than conventional produce. It's because of this restriction against the use of nitrogen fertilizer. Most, most consumers today worry about pesticides. They're not worried about uh, nitrogen fertilizer uh, being taken up in the roots of the plants. Uh, so the, the, the organic standard is, is a mismatch with what consumers are most worried about uh, today, and that's, uh, and that's pesticides. Now, uh, there's another misconception here, and that is that uh, organic farmers don't use pesticides. They do use pesticides. They use naturally occurring pesticides like uh, Bacillus thuringiensis or copper sulfate. These are naturally occurring toxins that protect their plants against, uh, against insects. The, the distinction between synthetic and naturally occurring has a kind of a mystical appeal. That's how the organic uh, standard got started. 
but it's not uh, a convincing scientific foundation uh, for, for guessing what's going to be safe uh, and what's not going to be safe. So moving from the mystical to the prosaic, um, you uh, highlight uh, policy recommendations um, that um, uh, when it comes to food that would be effective in promoting greater health and that might make a bigger or certainly more immediate impact than trying to scale up our entire food system to organic farming. So if the goal is healthier eating, what are what policy recommendations or what can you point to that 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 work for healthier eating and and what's I'm just curious what's the role for the various levels of government in uh, adopting those policy recommendations? Okay, uh, well our our food system is broken today because uh, we have an unhealthy diet. Obesity prevalence in the United States has tripled, tripled since the 1960s. 42% of all American adults are now clinically obese. This is, and it's, it's not slowing down. My guess is during uh, the pandemic, this will worsen. If you look at frozen pizza sales today, they're in some states 50% higher than they were uh, a year ago. So we have a, it, we have a it's rippled, I have to tell you, it's rippled potato chips in our household. Uh, <laughs> they've they've got to be they've got to be rippled, and it's got to contain all those essential food groups: sugar, fat, salt, grease, and sludge, yeah, yeah. in order to be tasty. Well, well, now now you now you put your finger on the source of the problem. It doesn't come from farms; it comes from food companies, manufacturing food companies who create products that are. Uh, ultra processed, so we um, we eat them so quickly you barely have to chew that um, the stomach doesn't have time to tell the brain that it's that it's had enough. So we overeat. If you're if you're eating an ultra processed diet as opposed to a minimally processed diet of exactly the same foods, you will you'll consume on average 500 calories more every day and gain two pounds a week. Uh, and these companies, they don't just ultra process, they add sugar, salt, and fat. Uh, the, the sugar uh, spikes our insulin, uh, which leaves us hungry again very quickly. That means the calories go into the fat cells. It increases obesity. The, uh, these salt, fat, sugar, texture formulations the companies come up with in combination uh, create a, a dopamine high. The food hits the back of your tongue and, and it, it hits what the industry calls a bliss point that triggers the reward cycle uh, in our, the, 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 the reward circuit in our brain. Uh, and we, we crave the food now, we want that again. And so the companies have put all these foods out there. They're virtually addictive. They've surrounded us with them we, we don't live in food deserts, we live in food swamps. And they advertise these foods relentlessly, including to children. And uh, of course, we, we consume too much. This is why we have an unbalanced, excessive, uh, unhealthy diet. The food companies say, well, wait a minute, we're not forcing you to eat these foods. You, you put the food in your mouth, we don't. We don't have a gun to your head. Uh, it's a matter of personal responsibility. That's their mantra. Uh, 
But I stop and ask myself, wait a minute, our obesity rate has tripled since the 1960s. Are we three times as irresponsible today as we were in the 1960s? I say, absolutely not. The food environment has changed and what we need are uh, regulatory interventions to, uh, uh, to, to drain that swamp of unhealthy, addictive uh, foods and move ourselves in a, in a healthier direction. I, I could say more. I'm sorry, I've gone on too long with my preface. I haven't gotten to your policy interventions yet. Not at all. I, I just wanted to point out that I, I was introduced to a fantastic acronym. I'm pretty sure I can say this on the radio. The word CRAP, which is calorie-rich and processed. And so if you avoid eating crap, you can, uh, maybe that's a great way to boil down the policy side, but go, go ahead. Why don't, you, why don't you touch on the, are there some simple policy things that we could do to help us avoid the crap? Yeah, I, I, I think there are. Um, you don't want to just avoid the crap. You also want to eat uh, healthy, uh, mostly um, plant-based uh, foods. Uh, and, and that's one limitation with uh, organic. I mentioned organically grown produce costs on average about 50% more than conventional produce. If we switched to an organic food system, those healthy fruits and vegetables would, would no longer be affordable to a segment of the population and their diet would, would worsen rather than increase. But what I would like to do is three, at least three things. First, I would like to put an excise tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. That's something that's uh, been done at the municipal level now by Berkeley and Philadelphia and San Francisco and Seattle. And it reduces sugar-sweetened beverage consumption and increases bottled water consumption. We know that it works. Second, I would like nutrition guidance labeling on the front of the package instead of the side of the package. And, and third, I would like to put restrictions on the advertising of, uh, of junk foods, crap foods uh, to, to children. 18 European countries have embraced at least one of these three policies and they have an average rate of obesity only half as high as our own. In the United States at the federal level, we haven't done any one of these th three things. Are you really saying that if, if we took the potato that could be cut up into a bag of chips and instead of cutting it up into a bag of chips, but we simply threw it in the oven, cooked it at home and, and fed it to ourselves, we'd be getting nutrition from the potato without all the stuff that goes into creating those delicious chips? And is there a role for government? Really a role for government, big government? Now, remember you're talking to New Hampshire people here. So when you talk about big government coming in to tell us, you're trying to tell me I can't eat chips? I can't drink soda? You want me to have to read about what's inside my food on the front of the package? What are you trying to do? You're, you, this is anti-American. Well, it's a public health crisis. So uh, I think we need public policies in response. And, you know, the, the, the food companies are actually aware of the problem, uh, but they can't solve it on their own. Sometimes they try. They will add new products to their offerings that are healthy. They'll even remove some things. Uh, some restaurant chains have tried to clean up their act by removing the all-you-can-eat uh, riblets uh, from, uh, from the menu. 
but then they lose customers. No one, we're so addicted to these foods that any company that takes them away is going to lose market share to the companies that continue to offer them. So uh, what we have to understand is these companies are not monopolies. They compete, they compete fiercely against each other and they actually need the government's help in moving all at the same time to a higher standard. I believe they would, uh, they would accept, they may not welcome at first, but they would accept uh, a higher standard when it comes to nutrition labeling on their packages. It would, it would nudge them in a healthier direction. If we had a traffic light on the front of the box that, uh, that categorized some packaged food products as, as red, red light products, as opposed to yellow or green light products, the companies making the red light products would reformulate enough to get the, to get the yellow light. It would, be, it would be good for them and, and good for us. Uh, I know uh, there are some live free or die people up there who, who uh, would want to still get their ruffled chips, but they could do that just by ignoring the red light. <laughs> they could still buy these products. They wouldn't, they wouldn't disappear. So I don't think we're taking uh, choices away uh, from people. We're, we're trying to nudge both people and the industry towards a greater health consciousness. So at the risk of offending our podcast listeners around the country, many of whom uh, come from liberal enclaves, uh, I happen to live in one myself, so I, I know of what I speak. One more on this question of rebalancing our, our food intake. I was really taken with the uh, section in the book where you talk about the movement to push people to eat more local seasonal food. And I was particularly taken with the passage where you offered a little bit of gentle criticism of Alice Waters and the slow food movement, which I find, uh, and, and this is me, I'm a Democrat talking here, I find sort of impossibly pompous. And, and you write that Alice Waters puts a higher value on her culinary integrity and derides scaling as a term from fast food culture. Other celebrity chefs also seem comfortable with exclusivity. They advise us to eat seasonally, but then they fly off to Sicily in April to give cooking workshops. They won't have to suffer with late winter vegetables. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is the other side of the coin is pretty difficult. I mean, there's sort of the labeling side, there's the preventing, trying to tamp down the amount of processed food we eat. But why is it so hard? in your mind to do the other side of the coin and scale up the amount of local seasonal food that we eat. Okay, in, in fairness to Alice Waters, uh, who's, who's a delightful person, uh, if I lived in the Bay Area or even better somewhere around San Diego, uh, I, could, uh, I could eat uh, local food, including local fish, uh, and have a wonderfully uh, uh, affordable as well as a healthy diet, but we don't we don't all live in in Southern California. The problem with imagining a relocalization of our uh, of our food supply, our food system nationally, is that uh, too many of us live in places like Massachusetts and and New Hampshire, uh, and we have to we have to rely on fresh fruits and vegetables that travel a considerable distance if we want to keep those products in our diet year round. You could grow them in a greenhouse, but they would be phenomenally expensive. 
so uh, most people don't realize, most people don't realize that the United States today imports half of its fresh fruit consumption. And we import one third, nearly one third of our fresh vegetable consumption. So if we, if we simply nationalized, if we, we didn't have to go all the way to local, if we simply nationalized uh, our, our food system, we'd have to find some way to replace those healthy items with uh, fruit and vegetables grown in the United States. And it wouldn't be easy, you could do it, but it would be very expensive. As I've said, right now, Americans eat too few of these healthy products. Why, why do we wanna make it more difficult by telling them they can't uh, import from abroad? There are a lot of tropical products. I mean, I, I had mango for breakfast this morning. A lot of tropical products we can't grow uh, at all. Uh, and I, I just don't see, I don't see uh, the, the dietary reason for going back to an ultra local uh, diet only. I like local products in addition to my, to my imported tropical fruits and my fresh vegetables um, brought in from, uh, from a neighboring state or from even farther away so I can have them all winter long. So um, I'm curious about, um, I hear you. And you know, I, when I go shopping, I see that the, uh, the grapes are from Chile, the avocados are from Mexico. Uh, the uh, tangerines may come from Israel. Um, it's pretty remarkable in modern society that we are able to use uh, modern transportation methods and um, scientific and industrial methods for uh, preserving our food that can travel to the United States so that um, uh, somewhere in South Dakota, far away from the ocean, there's probably a certain number of sushi bars that people are getting their, um, their sushi flown in. What's the interplay and the relevance of the transportation techniques, all of which have a significant carbon footprint with uh, what's going on with climate change and the impact of both the travel and industrial farming uh, on uh, climate change, which may ultimately have a huge impact on the way our food is, is grown and distributed. Well, different modes of transport do have uh, different carbon footprints. And what uh, interests me is that the, the favored mode of transport for a lot of extremely localized food systems is, is carbon intensive. If, if, um, if a local farm loads up its tomatoes and cucumbers in a, in a pickup, and drives to the farmer's market uh, 15 miles away uh, in order to sell these products to individual consumers who are driving their personal automobiles um, from another 15 miles away to buy a, a bag full of this and a bag full of that. The, the carbon footprint of each consumed tomato and each consumed cucumber is gonna be huge because the load size is is so small. If on the end, because and because you're using you're using a, a gasoline or diesel fuel burning uh, transportation. If on the other hand, you load a, a container 
uh, with uh, a lot of produce and put it on ocean freight, it's, it can travel across the ocean uh, and there'll be very little carbon uh, released for every individual tomato or product uh, delivered. It's not, it's not the distance something travels. It's not the food miles something travels. It's, it's the mode of transport and it's the load size. The, the most costly load of trans, uh, mode of transport in terms of fossil fuel burning is of course uh, airplanes. Uh, the least costly is, is ocean freight or rail. Uh, 18 wheelers are a little uh, worse than rail, but not as bad as, as private pickup trucks and personal uh, automobiles. And the load size is really uh, uh, the, the way to avoid uh, uh, a carbon footprint from the food we, we transport. And we have to remember an, another po uh, point, uh, the, what transportation contributes to the carbon footprint of our food system is only about 4%. Most of, most of the greenhouse gas emissions from our food system reflect what's being done on the farm and not uh, the transportation of the commodities after they leave the farm. So it's really on the farm that we have to, we have to work hard to cut back on, on uh, carbon emissions and we're doing a much better job there. That's actually an interesting point when it comes to carbon. It, from my understanding, and, and maybe you can fill in all the gaps and, and things I'm about to get wrong, one of the advantages of non-organic farming methods is the ability to employ no-till agriculture and other less carbon intensive farming methods that are appropriate for conventional plants, but that don't work as well for organic plants. Is that, is that the case? Is there, is there an argument to be made that more conventional farming methods are actually less carbon intensive? Yeah, I think that is the case. I, we moved to no-till farming. That's where you don't plow the field before you put down the seeds. You, you drill the seeds right through the, the stubble from last year's harvested crop. We moved to no-till farming in the 1970s during an energy crisis when the price of diesel fuel was unaffordable and, and farmers found a way to innovate around uh, all this expensive burning of diesel fuel when they were plowing their fields. And we've stuck with it since because it not only saves diesel fuel and reduces greenhouse gas emissions, it also sequesters carbon in the ground. It, it retains soil moisture. It's, uh, it's, it's a good conservation practice for, for many reasons. It's, I'm not sure that it's impossible to do uh, with uh, organically grown uh, crops, but uh, uh, weed control is much more difficult if you use no-till and organic farmers are, are tightly restricted on the strategies they can use in, in weed control. So uh, I, I want to um, just turn our attention uh, to uh, the where's the beef question, um, which you uh, bring up uh, by talking about the fact that 
as we were discussing in, in when we were talking about carbon, uh, that it's really uh, the farming practices and what's happening on the farm that are the bigger contributors to uh, the issues around carbon than uh, transportation. So if I'm, if, if my understanding as, as slim as it may be is correct, um, the way we produce and consume meat in the country um, may have uh, a lot to do with the carbon footprint of our agriculture system. Am I right? Is that true? Uh, and um, do you advocate uh, different practices in the way we um, raise uh, and, and grow uh, our meat and the way the meat industry works? Is there, are there health reasons? Are there scientific reasons? Is it carbon? Um, what about methane? What can you tell us about the where's the beef question? <laughs> well, you've got the right question. Uh, the livestock sector it does play uh, a significant role in increasing greenhouse gas emissions. It's not so much carbon as it is methane, as you pointed out. Ruminant animals uh, that uh, have two stomachs belch out a lot of methane, which is a potent uh, greenhouse gas. We have, we've made considerable progress in reducing uh, methane by using different breeds of animals, new genetics, plus um, new feed rations that allow us to produce more meat or more milk more quickly uh, with less manure, fewer animals, and less methane. This is most prominent actually in, in the dairy sector uh, where milk production is up even though the number of cows that we milk is dramatically down. Uh, one uh, scientist out at uh, University of California, Davis, has calculated that the, the climate burden of a glass of milk in the United States today is actually two thirds smaller than it was in, in 1950. But there are, limits, there are limits to what we can do with improved feed rations and better genetics. Uh, and especially in, in developing countries, uh, it will be useful to move away from our current consumption of ruminant animal meat in particular, uh, red meat, in particular beef, um, because it is such a burden on, on the climate. And we're, we're looking for different ways to do that. And the latest uh, approach is to use modern science to develop plant-based imitation uh, meat products, including plant-based imitation ground beef that uh, mimics the taste of ground beef, but no animals, no animals are raised in order to, to give us the product. So everyone's probably tried Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers. These are plant-based imitation meats that have a, a greenhouse gas burden for every patty that we consume that's 90% smaller than a, a real a patty of of ground beef. This uh, this could be a game changer when it comes to to making the consumption of meat-like products uh, environmentally 
sustainable. It's controversial. There are some purists in the food movement who say, well, we don't like these products because they're, they're, they're ultra processed. Well, they are ultra processed. But um, if, you, if you switch to these products, you're not just reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you're lowering the, uh, the medical risks that come with antibiotics that are given to, to animals, and you're eliminating the animal welfare concerns that we have with the treatment uh, of animals today by the livestock industry. You know, I'm so glad that you invoked the word purists as we wind down to the end of our conversation, because the way I read your book was as sort of a plea to all of us to avoid thinking in absolutes and to avoid being purists about all of these issues. I have to admit that I approached your book with the same orientation that Paul talked about at the top of the show of, you know, I, I tend to think of organic as good, big farms bad. And what comes across to me, and I want to sort of read this back to you and see how you react, is that what you lay out is sort of a plea for nuance, a plea for looking at all of these issues in not so much black and white terms, more in terms of the complexity that goes into them. For example, you talked about the genesis of the organic movement being a pushback against synthetic fertilizer, synthetic fixed nitrogen. But if you switch to a scaled up organic source of nitrogen, well, where does that come from? It comes from mostly manure. Well, what's the carbon footprint of that as you were just laying out? How are you transporting it to the organic farms? It just raises a host of really complicated interrelated questions. And I just, I found the book fascinating from that standpoint, just to kind of step back, rethink, maybe see more of the, the gray areas. Is that is that a reasonable summation of, of what you're getting across here? Or would you put it any differently? No, I think that's a very good summary uh, of, of, of my approach here. I, I'm not sure that it's, it's the best way to sell books. Uh, a lot of people want a clear black and white villains and victims view of the world. They want, they want uh, an argument that will arouse their emotions rather than one that will uh, uh, lure them into nuance. Uh, but, uh, you know, the best I can do is, uh, is treat my readers with the same respect I give to my students. I don't want, I don't want to give my students a, a villains and victims view of the world. Uh, I trust them to process information with some care and draw their own conclusions. And so that's my strategy in this book also. Put, put the information out there, point out the fact that uh, some people have tried to, uh, to sell a simpler bill of goods and then let the reader decide. So this is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host Matt Robeson. We've been talking with Professor Robert Paulberg about his book, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. My brain has exploded. I'm only going to eat impossible burgers one chip at a time, and I'm going to take a new look at what I eat and how I eat it. Thanks for joining us. Catch us on your podcast. Like us on Facebook. We'll be back next week for Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Let's go beyond politics. We'll see you, folks. <laughs> <laughs>